We are going to finish up Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And we are going to read from verse 18. Romans 5.18. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, many will be made righteous. The law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We covered some of this last time, but the key here is that is that uh, uh, we are sinners because of what happened with Adam. We are sinners because of what happened with Adam, and it's because we are sinners we commit acts of sin. And it says that that through the transgression in verse eighteen, through the transgression, through the one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. All people are condemned through that transgression. It's through that transgression that all people are condemned. We are not condemned first because our own sins. No, we are condemned because of that thing that Adam did on the cross. And that results then in us committing many other acts of sin. Even through the one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Through that one act of Jesus on the cross, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, we are all justified. Verse 19 says it again, For through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, the obedience of the one, the many will be made the many will be made righteous. So you see that it's through that one act of disobedience that many were made sinners. We were made sinners because of that one act of disobedience. And that's why, that's why even children die before they've committed any, anything. The unborn or even, even die. Uh, the death comes because of that act of disobedience that was there. That's what, what does it. Just as the one act of obedience is justification and brings about righteousness. It says in verse 20, the law, capital L, means the Mosaic law, came in so that the transgression would increase. How did transgressions increase? Well, when you have 613 laws that surround everything in life, transgressions now increase. The more laws you have, the more transgressions there are. And it says that it came in so that they would increase. You say, well, why would God want to increase transgressions? So that people would be seen as utterly sinful. So that they would see themselves as utterly sinful. Because if you had no rules around you, you you think that, oh, well, I'm pretty good. Well, all of a sudden, now you start putting rules around and you're like, "Uh uh-oh, I broke that one, I broke that one, I broke that one. And that's exactly what God did to show people how utterly sinful they really were, that they were not really pretty good. And it says, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. There is sufficiency of grace, which we discussed last time. It says, so that as sin reigned through, as sin reigned in death, sin reigned in death. And I see this all the time in people's lives. I see people that, that, uh, uh, succumb 
to the committing of sin and straying from God, and it affects every part of their life. It affects their career, it affects their relationship, it affects their their marriage, it affects their children, and it becomes an utter mess. And for believers, believers have the ability to continue to walk in sin and not resist this and fall into it, and it and the same destruction comes. You want to move away from God? You want to cause yourself to move away from God? You sin. The more you sin, the more you move away from God. God's not moving. He's, he's, he's right here. We move away from God as we sin. And troubles, troubles, troubles come. And even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life. Grace, an undeserved gift, would reign through righteousness. When we follow the ways of Jesus, there is so much blessing and so much grace. It affects our work, it affects our family, it affects our relationship. When we walk righteously, it affects so much around us. I mean, one of the sad things is, is that in a marriage, because of the interconnectedness in marriage, if one party starts walking in sin, it affects the whole marriage, it affects everyone in the household, because we are not independent of one another. It not only affects the household, it affects the society in which we live. And that's why you notice this much more when you have children. When you get married and you have children, you become a much more active a uh, 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 member of your community because all of a sudden you start caring about the school systems all of a sudden you care dramatically about the crime because you want you, you wonder if your kids are are riding their bicycles if they're ever going to come back or if somebody's going to snatch them things like this you become very interconnected and you see how interconnected we are that one person's sin out there can affect me and my family greatly and it says, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, it all becomes, all comes through Jesus Christ. It is because of him we are protected. And, and uh, you know, in my own prayer time, I'm reading through the, the prophet Jeremiah, and he is raining down anathemas on, on, on these, these, these nations that have opposed God. And he, you know, he, he just, just goes through it. He goes uh, uh, on, on Edom, on Ammon, on Moab. On Babylon, I mean just the, the, what is going to come upon those nations as a result of, of uh, uh, their disobedience and their affliction upon God's people. Uh, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God because God is perfect and we are not because we are sinners. And it is so beautiful that standing between the Father and us is Jesus. This Jesus stands in front and it his love and what he's done on the cross sets us to justification. And with this, we move into chapter six. So let me, let me, uh, 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 read in chapter six and we'll start reading from verse one. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, have been baptized into his death. That we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, 
that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you may obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting your members of the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Okay, so let me give a couple of, of uh, very short thoughts about, about um, uh, uh, these different chapters. So in... What we formerly were covering in the last few chapters was justification. Justification deals with our guilt. Justification deals with our guilt. We have been justified, as it talks about in chapter 5. We are declared righteous. We are declared righteous. This is a legal declaration. You are righteous, not because of what you have done, but when you are in Christ, you become righteous. It is a declaration. It is a legal thing. Chapter 6 deals with sanctification, being set apart or consecrated to holiness. This deals with our sin. Sanctification deals with our sin. So justification deals with guilt. Sanctification deals with our sin. Uh, uh, Chapter 6, interestingly enough, is going to teach why we do not have to sin anymore. We do not have to. We may, but we don't have to. Now, it's never teaching that we are walk, we're, we're going to be walking in sinless perfection. In fact, Paul teaches and argues against that. But chapter 6 is going to t- tell us why we do not have to walk in sin any longer. Chapter 7 is going to say that if we try not to sin, we will. Chapter 7 is going to say if we try not to sin, we will. Chapter 8 in verses 1 through 17 is going to say we don't have to sin again uh, because of the power of the Holy Spirit. And he brings us into the power of the Holy Spirit. So when you look in verse 1 of chapter 6, it says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? So this invariably comes up. When you teach salvation by grace alone, apart from works, the question always comes up. Sometime when you're, when, when you're working with people, they'll say, So does that mean that I can do whatever I want to now? Does that mean I can do what if, if salvation comes apart from my works, does that mean I can do whatever I want? And so the same thing comes up, that the same question arises in our dealings with people in our own lives and even the thoughts that come to us. If that same question arises with what Paul is asking here, using this diatribe method where he asks a question, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? The same question that is asked today, Paul is presenting to them. And why is Paul asking this question? Because he's not there in front of them. He's writing a letter. So he is asking the very question that they themselves are going to be thinking about. He asks that question, and then he goes to answer it. He says, "Shall he says, are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Then he says in verse 2, may it never be. Remember that expression, may it never be, is the strongest of, of Greek negations. He's like, perish the thought, no way, absolutely no way. May it never be. 
how shall we who died to sin still live in it? So what he's saying is, it does not mean you have a license to sin. It does not mean that you can do whatever you want. He says, he who died, to, how shall he who died to sin still live in it? So he's saying, we've died to sin. How can we live in it? And remember, in the life of the believer, if we continue to practice sin, it brings destruction. It brings destruction in our lives. And it brings destruction not just in us, but to our family and the people with whom we relate because because lives are interconnected. Just like people who walk in grace and in blessing, that blesses all sorts of people around them. When you walk in grace and in the power of God, it affects you, it affects your spouse, it affects your children. It also affects people at work. It affects people around you. And that's why we have the body of Christ, so that we can begin to relate to one another. We can learn from one another. If you try to do this on your own, and I know during these days of pandemic, it's very easy to think that I can just stay in my house and do this all by myself and to lose that that connection of people because it's harder to gather together. It's really important to have that connection, even if it be electronically with people. Really important. It's very hard to grow alone. You can grow, but it is hard to grow alone because we feed off of one another. It is just like I I get emails from people that they're studying chemistry on their own. And they, you know, they come up with this thing and that thing. Their theories that they come up with are usually sophomoric. The things that they, they come up with are usually not very advanced at all. Not that they can't study, but when they try to do it on their own, it's very hard. I'm in a university. I'm surrounded by colleagues that are doing chemistry. I see seminars that are, I'm watching seminars and seeing technology happen all the time. If you are at a big university that's doing a lot of active research, you grow all the more. If you are at a small place that does very little research and people around you aren't doing research, you don't do very well. <clears throat> you have to be at a place that's really active. And the more active that place is, the more you grow. It's the same thing. When it comes to things of the Spirit, when you're around people that are actively growing in God, it affects you. We are interconnected. And then he says, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? And then it's almost as if he stops. And he's like, "Uh uh-oh, I don't think they really understand what I said when I said, he who has died to sin, how shall we still live in it? So he says in verse 3, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? So he's backtracking. So he makes this statement. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And then it's almost like, uh uh-oh. They probably don't know, know what I'm talking about. And so he backs up and he says, don't you know? Don't you know? And you say, don't you know? Because it's almost as if we say that to people when we, when they should have known. When they should have known, we say, don't you know that? Uh, I wouldn't say to one of my colleagues, don't you know that carbon forms four bonds? I would never say that to one of my colleagues because it would be condescending. But I would say that to, to a, a young student. I would say, don't you know that carbon has four bonds? So he's backing up. He's, he's saying, don't you know that? All of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, have been baptized into his death. And the baptism that he's talking about is spirit baptism. Water doesn't have that kind of power. 
Although I will mention, if you have not been water baptized, you ought to be. You ought to be. I have never known anyone that could grow deep in the Lord without water baptism because there's an outstanding disobedience in your life. And every time I say this, people sign up for baptism. And you should. It is a good thing. Go to your church and tell them you want to be baptized. And and uh, get yourself baptized. If you've not been baptized after believing in the Lord Jesus, you really ought to be. It's going to be hard to grow without it because there's an outstanding disobedience in your life. But let's look in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. He's talking about spirit baptism. For by one, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we are all made to drink of one spirit. We are all together in this. He breaks down these walls of segregation between us. He says we've got, it's the same spirit baptism. Black, white, whatever our background, whatever our class, we're all in this together. There is one spirit baptism, and that is the beautiful thing about the church. You could be really rich, and you ought to sleep sweet floors, just like everybody else. Everybody comes together. In the church, we work together. We might have different roles, but when something's got to be swept up, you sweep it up. I love to see people walking by in church, and when there's trash on the ground, they just bend down and pick it up. Do you do you let there be trash on the ground in your house without picking it up? But people who really care about that place, they just pick it up. There's trash on the ground, somebody walks up, they don't wait for a janitor to pick it up. They just go and pick it up. Somebody spilled something and right away they're, they're busy trying to get the thing clean. If there's toilets overflowing in the church, they, they, they run and they get somebody. They don't just go, oh, that's a mess and walk out. They find somebody who can get the equipment to get that thing cleaned up. They chase these things down because we are one body. We're one body. This is one family. And that's the beautiful thing about the local church. But he says here in verse 3 of of, uh, Romans chapter 6, Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? We are part of his death. When we have spirit baptism, when we have received of Jesus Christ, we are filled with the spirit. When we get filled with the spirit, we're baptized into his death. Verse 4, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that Christ... So, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. This newness of life that occurs. When I got saved, I didn't tell anybody. I didn't know, you know, I had this visitation in my room and it gave my life to Jesus as it had been explained to me. And, and, uh, uh, and then because I was coming from a Jewish background, it was very confusing to me. And then people saw it in my face. That guy saw it in my face. The guy who had shared with me saw it in me. And uh, he said, Jim, have you received the Lord? I said, I think I have. Why do you ask? He said, you haven't stopped smiling for weeks. This newness of life, something comes over us. There is a newness of life that comes over us. If you look in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. There is a newness when we come into Christ. New believers don't often realize this. They do not realize what has happened. I realize it when they give their life to Christ. I realize that the scriptures are going to become all the more open to them. I realize this. Uh, uh, w- w- what's happened there? 
And it says they are a new creature. The old things are going to pass, pass away. And that's exactly what it says in verse 4 of Romans chapter 6. He says there is a newness of life. There's a newness of life. You've been buried with him through this baptism. You've been raised from the dead. There's a newness of life. Uh, and, and he says something new here has happened. This is a judicial new. You may not feel it. It is, it is God proclaims it to be. He proclaims it to be. Just like when a judge says to somebody who may be guilty of a crime, but, but, uh, uh, but for some reason he was not, the, 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 the crime may have, uh, uh, um, uh, may, maybe the state couldn't prove the guilt. Or maybe there was a, there was a penalty that the, the person was going to have to pay and somebody paid the penalty on their behalf. But when the judge says not guilty, that's it. It doesn't mean that you didn't commit the crime. It's just that the state does not find you guilty of that crime. God has proclaimed something over us because the price has been paid. When Jesus died on the cross, his death was different than any other death. When he died on the cross, he had Thousands and millions and millions of people who died with him, and and and, uh, and we're going to be raised with him. He paid the price for all of them. He paid the price for all of them, and he had this thing all set apart for those that that, that were among the elect. He did this. So it says in verse five of Romans chapter six: For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. Certainly, we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Certainly. You know what certainly means? It means certainly. Certainly, we shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. We have been raised up with Him. There is a new life that comes upon us as a believer. And Paul says this, and he says, Don't you know this? Don't you know? As if, no, I I didn't know. And so that's why Paul has to say, Don't you know this? Verse 7. For he who has died is freed from sin. When you're dead, you're freed from sin. You go to a graveyard, you don't see a whole lot of sin being committed by the people who, who are resident in that graveyard. There's no sin going on by those people. When you're dead, there's no more sin. In God's eyes, you have been raised with Him, you have cru- you've been crucified with Him, and you've been raised up. Verse 6 of Romans chapter 6. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him. Our old self, our old nature. This is why he talked about in Corinthians that there is a new nature. Our old self was crucified with Him. In order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. No longer be slaves to sin. That means for the unbeliever, for the unbelievers that are even hearing me speak right now, for people who do not know Jesus, for people who have not yet said, Lord, I believe, I believe that Jesus is Lord and I believe that He's risen from the dead. For people who have not gone through that, they're slaves to sin. You can try to stop sinning, but you won't be very successful. You are a slave to sin. You're a slave to sin. We do not have to be slaves to sins so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. We are not enslaved to sin. So, in other words, there is a potential path to victory now over sin. There is a path to victory over sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died... 
Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. If we've died with Him, we believe that we shall also live with Him. There's this closeness that comes. This closeness that comes. So there's this question. The question comes in verse 1. Are we to continue to sin so that grace may abound? And verse 2 through 14, he's answering this question. This is a present tense in verse 1. Are we to continue to sin? It is, it is a, a habitual sin. Shall we walk in habitual sin? And, and the answer is saying no. You don't have to walk in habitual sin. And, and, uh, you can't do whatever you want. Here in verse 2 through verse 10, it's dealing with theology. Verse 10. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. And that is a beautiful way to live. You live to God. You know, I'll I'll tell you, let 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 me bring this personal. You know, I was so hopeful that we had we had passed through this pandemic and that you know I was going back to work masks were off we could talk we didn't have to socially distance and because for a year and a half I run this re- research group and I had to be the one that was encouraging people that was encouraging students and I had I was teaching hundreds of students this past year hundreds of them and I would get on there and be as upbeat as I could to encourage them in light of all that they had to deal with, the online learning and all of this. And I would say, yeah, we have to learn online, but it's not so bad. We're getting through this. And 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 uh, uh, I would be this voice of encouragement to them. And I wanted to be that. And that's what I was called to. And now that this Delta has come back and there's these spikes of things and, and the, the vaccines were, are not as effective against Delta. And, uh, um, you know, it's easy to get this attitude of being defeated and like, oh no, here we go again. But then I read this. It says, it says, for the death that he died, meaning the death that Jesus died, Jesus, he died to sin once for all. But the life that Jesus lives, he lives to God. Jesus lives to God. I shall live to God. This is not about me doing this. I am going to live my life to God. God has called me in this generation at this time and I will continue to walk in victory. I am living my life to God. Jesus lived his life to God. If you look, how much success did Jesus have in his lifetime? How much success? Even his innermost circle, among his innermost circle of 12, there was an absolute traitor. Of the remaining 11, all fled from him. All fled from him in the garden. All of them. One, John, returned uh, uh, after Jesus was on the cross. John returned. The other ten didn't even return. And, and, and so if you look, I mean, did, did Israel turn in his lifetime? No, Israel didn't turn. He was condemned as a sinner. And so if you look at, at just the image of, of his success here on earth, you'd say, well, what good was it? But then in the resurrection, this power was set loose so that within 200 years, it became the dominant world faith was Christianity. And most most sociologists that have studied this, it's interesting. How could it go from a group of, of, of people that had all fled from Jesus to being the dominant world religion in 200 years? And it is hands down characterized as this. Because they cared for the, the, the poor and for the infirmed. 
Because they cared for the poor and the infirmed, it grew. And if you look at, at uh, uh, the writings of the day, writings, for example, of, of, of Tacitus, you will see that they, they even condemned these people that were so-called Christians. Because they said, this is a religion for women and for poor people. That's who it was attracting. The women and the poor, the afflicted of that day. That's who it was attracting. The slaves of that day it was attracting. And through that, within 200 years, it became the dominant world religion. How did that happen? When you take care of the poor and the infirmed, you grow. When you take care of the poor and the infirmed, you grow. And God gives us multiple opportunities to do that. You know, it's interesting that Christians will spend $5,000 to buy tickets and to go and to spend two weeks on the mission field in Africa, which is great. But they won't go five miles down the road to do something for the community. To do something. And, 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 uh, we have multiple chances to take the gifts that we have and minister to people regardless of where they are. And that's what causes growth in the, in the body of Christ. And it, and we are called to live for God. If we do this in ourselves, we will get wiped out. Jesus lived for God. That's what it says in verse 10. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. If I can drop this in your heart, you are living your Christian life to God. You are serving Him. If you serve other people, you will get worn out. You'll get very tired. You get worn out if you live for, 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 uh, uh, if, if you think that you've got to do this on your own. But I do this for God. I do this for God. In John chapter 17, John chapter 17 verse 4, it, it talks about how Jesus lived His life. And, and, and I've shared this before, but this is a key verse in my life. In John chapter 17, verse 4, he reveals to us, we see how, what Jesus thought, how he was going to be effective in service to the Father. How could he be effective in service to the Father? In John chapter 17, verse 4, he's, he's, he prays to his Father. Jesus said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. We bring glory to the Father. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Jesus accomplished the work that the Father had given him to do on this earth. We live for God. We live for God. And so if we got to go through another cycle of this pandemic, I live for God. I'm going to walk and I'm going to be an encouragement to people around me because I have tapped into God. I have tapped into God through my Lord Jesus Christ and I will receive every bit of grace that I need to be the encouragement, to be the support, to be effective. I am not going to wallow in the defeat of this world. No way. Because I live for God. Because I live for God. It says, it says that he lives to God. Now, so the verses 1 through 10, he's dealing with theology. In verse 11, he deals with the practical. Here's how we do this. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider yourselves, reckon it true. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. I have to consider myself to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That, that when I commit an act of sin, I ask God to forgive me and I move on and I re, re, repent of this and I am going to move on in my life. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You know, I was, I was cleaning out my attic yesterday, 
after 22 years and my son-in-law was helping me and so I could get this help and I found some this box of old old uh, uh, pictures and negatives and Shireen said well we just throw them out I said well, why don't you just look through them and uh, she found all these old notes that I had written to my family where I was asking them to forgive me for having lost my temper. And, uh, uh, and I was, I was saying, writing to my daughter, I'm so sorry for spanking you without first holding your hands and explaining it to you. And, and you know, I was so refreshed to go back and look at that. And I showed it to my daughter, who's now 37. And, I, and she says, yeah, this, 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 this is how I grew up. <laughs> and I said, well, at least you had me constantly. You know, apologizing for, for, for my, losing my temper and, and, and doing these things. And, and, uh, uh, and this is what it says. You, you know, because it, it says, therefore, uh, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Salvation, I'm telling you, salvation in Jesus Christ is not a sham. This thing really works. People who live this Christian life, it really works. It really works. It is not a sham. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That you would be alive to God in Christ Jesus. You'd be alive to God. I am going to live for God through Jesus Christ. And this is how you have the victory. Even so, consider yourselves. Believe it. Walk in it. Now it's up to you to walk in it. Verses 1 through 10 were theology. Verse 11, he says, now you got to accept it and walk in it. There is human responsibility in this. The human responsibility is to consider it so. Consider yourself. Reckon it so. This is true. Walk in it. I have to walk in this thing. I'm not, I can't just sit here and be negative all day and expect God to just poof. No, I have to make a decision to walk in the truth that's been presented here. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the truth of your word. Father, I pray for the believers on this line, on this call, that they would reckon this to be true, that they would consider it true, consider it so, and choose to walk in it, that they would live their lives for God, that they would be the stalwarts, that they would be the strength in their homes and in their communities, to their spouses, to their children, that they would stand, to their co-workers, to their family members, that they would stand that they would be the ones who would be living for God. They would live to God as Jesus did. That he was able to take so much because he lived his life to the Father. That we would live our lives for you. And there is sufficiency of grace in this. Lord, I thank you for how practical this is. You turn it right back to us and you say, now consider it so, walk in it. Father, I pray that they would consider it so and walk in it. And Lord, I pray for the unbelievers on this line. They are enslaved to sin and unable to be free from it. Father, I pray that they would come this day, that this very day that they would come to know Jesus and that they would be saved. Father, by the power of your hand and through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.